Welcome. I'm Angie Cuero. This is Your Call. Millions of people across the U.S. are affected by mental illness. Unfortunately, getting help is not simple at all. The mental health care system is inaccessible. It's underfunded. It's filled with a number of obstacles that leave people and their families feeling hopeless about where to turn in a crisis. Difficult logistical and financial questions always pop up. What if my insurance company won't cover my treatment? How do I find a therapist that works for me? How will I ever get better? On today's Your Call, we are discussing You Are Not Alone, the NAMI Guide to Navigating Mental Health with advice from experts and wisdom from real people and families. The book features stories from over 130 real people, real names, talking about their own mental illness, also talks to their caregivers. It covers mental health-related topics like how to get help, the intersection of culture and mental health, and the importance of community support in improving our well-being. Joining me to discuss this is Dr. Ken Duckworth. He's the Chief Medical Officer of the National Alliance on Mental Illness, that's NAMI, and he's the author of You Are Not Alone. Ken is triple board certified in adult and child and adolescent psychiatry. He's an assistant clinical professor at Harvard University Medical School and adjunct clinical assistant professor at Boston University School of Public Health. Ken, thank you for being here. Angie, what a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let me talk about where you dive into the deep end right away. We're not even on page five yet, where you make and you allude to suicide. You know, maybe I can't keep up here. And then you have this idea just within a few pages about recurrence, about if you're getting better, it's like a perishable thing in a refrigerator. You may get a recurrence. Putting those two things together so early in the book made me feel like, you have faith in the people reading the book that they will have the strength to look at these things, even the hard things, right up front. Am I reading you right on that? You've got it exactly right, Angie. The truth is I interviewed real people to use their names because I felt like that was a gap in the mental health literature. Plenty of books by doctors, psychologists, social workers. But what about real people? What about the wisdom from real people? And one of the takeaway lessons is there's a lot of resilience in people, people who've had setbacks or been incarcerated or homeless, lost jobs, relationships, friendships, uh, had a lot of symptoms and a lot of difficulty, and they kept battling. So the story of resilience, you know, is another potential title of what the book could have been. But because of the shame and isolation that I know so well from my own journey into psychiatry, I wanted to focus on the idea that you are not alone, that there's someone like you from uh, 38 states, 11 different race and ethnicities, self-identified, 25 religious orientations, 50 occupations. There's somebody like you in this book. Mm -hmm. And that was the thing that I was most interested in conveying. No matter how hard it feels, there's someone like you who's happy to share what they've learned. We have so much to discuss, and it, roughly, I want to take it in order of diagnosis, treatment, insurance, and support. Mm-hmm. However, it's so important to get the phone calls in here because so many people need advice and wisdom. I'm going to give out our phone number here. I do want to emphasize Dr. Duckworth is not here to give medical advice. As, as he points out, he's not licensed here in California. I'm sure they wouldn't have me. <laughs> 
<laughs> Number to call if you'd like advice, though, about these important things, how to get a diagnosis, how to navigate your way through treatment, how to deal with insurance companies. There's a big one. And how peer-to-peer support works, how you can become an advocate for yourself and for other people. All of that is in the book. If you have questions about any of those, get on the phones, 866-798-8255, 866-798-8255. And despite all the huge things we want to talk about this hour, getting your calls in is very important to us. So please dive right in there. You know, you brought up something in the book I never really thought about, and that is even the phrase mental health is inadequate. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, all the terms, mental health, mental illness, brain disorder, these are all imperfect descriptions because it sits on top of a diagnostic system, which is based on description of symptoms that we actually don't know the underlying cause of most mental health conditions. We don't know the underlying mechanism of action of most of the interventions. We do, however, know that knowing some of these things is better than not knowing them, and many of these treatments work. You just have to be so humble about the entire endeavor, Mm -hmm. right? And uh, you, as a person who's lived with something, are also an expert in a way that nobody, I think, has ever really taken an interest in, that if you've lived with, let's say, bipolar disorder for 30 years, you've probably learned something about your own schedules, about managing things, about how to deal with stressors, how to prevent recurrence, maybe seasonal patterns. That's the kind of thing that I wanted in the book. What mm-hmm. have people actually learned? I like traditional experts. Many of my best friends are traditional experts who run research studies. But really, I think the wisdom of real people and what they have put together for their own lives is what I was trying to convey in this book. Mm-hmm. I'm jumping way ahead here, but I absolutely love the woman you interviewed who, when her child was four years old, and she's sitting with the doctor, the expert, mm-hmm. and her doctor is saying, your child is never going to walk. Mm-hmm. You know, your child is never going to be an achiever. Or, pardon me, never going to talk. He's never mm-hmm. going to be an achiever. And she says, I need two things. He, what do you need? I need my keys and my purse. And she is out of there. And she knows as the mom, she's an expert on her own child. That It takes an awareness in the moment. A lot of us are intimidated by the medical system. A lot of us look at the expert on the hill and say, well, whatever, whatever he says, whatever she says, I'm in. Mm. No. Two things about my conversations with Angelina from uh, Texas. Uh, the son, who was supposedly never going to speak, interrupted our Zoom interview to order pizza with her for lunch. <laughs> so she said, excuse me, remember that son who was never going to talk? I think he want. do you want the cheese, honey, or the pepperoni? Like in their back and forth. It was absolutely adorable. And the other thing she said is she took a NAMI course. There's a lot of programs and classes for NAMI, all free, all across America. And she said that class gave me the courage to recognize that I had something to say about how this was going to go, too, right? So uh, Angelina is one of 130 just amazing people in the book. Yeah. Let's talk about the fact that they use their real names. That Mm. says a lot. uh, One of the publishers uh, told me I couldn't get real people to use their names. And I said, you were right a decade ago. It was true. But what's happened now, and this was true in my own family. My dad had very bad uh, mental health condition. Isolation, shame were the only default options. Another option now is to consider sharing your own experience to help other people because it helps you make meaning of it. So I'm not advertising for people. I'm not encouraging people to go and tell your HR director today. I'm saying 
you figure out if there's a time and a place. What I found from people, I stopped at 130 because I ran out of time. The book had a deadline. People are emailing me. I want to be in the book. I want to share my story. I don't think you have anybody who's from, uh, you know, Kansas in your book. And so, you know, it was making meaning of your experience is a transformation that has occurred in the last five or 10 years. Mm -hmm. And the willingness to be open speaks to the power of isolation and shame, which has harmed so many people. And I think altruism is alive and well, Angie. I know America's have its problems right now. These people all wanted to share their experience to help another person. Well, you you said the big word. You said shame. And we we aren't yet at the point where we can talk about mental health without at least addressing the topic mm-hmm. of shame. Why is shame to some extent falling away? Why are we finally making strides in saying mental health is nothing to be embarrassed about? Well, I'd say, you know, People like you work in this program. Uh, five publishers interested in my book. Famous athletes, Simone Biles, uh, saying, you know, I have a mental health thing going on. The work of NAMI, these are 700 communities across America that want, people are sharing their actual true experience. So I can't say it's any one thing, but I think shame and isolation kill a lot of people still in America. Delayed help, the outcome of suicide, overdose deaths. And the more you can say, okay, that person is like me, that person had problems and is working the problem, mm-hmm. it's going to be beneficial. And I think people intuited that. Taking your phone calls at 866-798-8255. David in San Francisco is checking in. David, thank you for waiting. I appreciate it. Yeah, no trouble, Angie. Long time, no talk. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was um, uh, just going to raise the issue of propaganda as uh, a, a, a device for pulling people away from normalcy and, and forcing them into uh, positions that uh, can't be backed up. Uh, I don't know if uh, either of you have seen the or uh, listened to uh, Rachel Maddow has a new series called Ultra, right. a podcast series, and she talks about the propaganda campaign of the Nazis before World War II. And then in the end of that series, she talks about how all of the prosecutions of uh, the propagandists disappeared. Uh, they, they went David, I need you to tie this into mental health for me. Well, that uh, there is so much about mental health that is forced, that is intentional. At that, uh, you know, the normal precepts of Christianity are being you know, foisted on us by gun lovers, telling us that Jesus is a gun packer. Well, you know what, David, you gave me something to grab on there. And one of those things I want to react to is that, uh, Ken, the idea of faith comes up frequently throughout the book, and it's neither pushed nor discarded. It's related as stories from people who have found their strength in faith, but you're not advocating faith per se. Uh, I listen to people. And some people found that faith made a difference in their recovery. There were also people who were told not to engage in treatment and not to take medication because faith would help or laying on of hands would help. And this was occurring in multiple churches across the country. So what I would say is religion relates to mental health very uniquely. For some people, it is a critical aspect of their recovery. And for some people, it delayed seeking help and caused them a lot of extra suffering. Mm-hmm. 
866-798-8255 to talk to Dr. Duckworth about the book, You Are Not Alone. Robert is on the line. Robert, I appreciate your waiting. Thank you. You are on the air. Thank you. Um, I'm a, a lawyer and a social worker by training and practice uh, for about well over 50 years and been involved in this field in juvenile courts, psychiatric hospitals, uh, other institutions. And, uh, you know, I appreciate the doctor's goodwill. I appreciate his empathy, both of you. Uh, but, you know, we really have to talk about the real hard issue here, which is in our culture, we really don't give a damn about most of these people. The funding is simply not there. This state, along with just about every other state in the country, gives virtually nothing. In addition, within that culture, we have professions and professionals. I think Harvard is a nice school. Good, get to meet a lot of people. The bottom line is, is that the profession itself has been more intent on earning money and being in the flow of the capitalist frame than anything else. And at some point, we're going to have to look at this as a cultural issue. I think that one of your earlier callers began to touch on it. We live in a culture where we are judged by how much we make, and there ain't no room for dealing with people with differences. Robert, your signal is starting to fade a little bit, so let me toss this over to Ken. Robert, first of all, thank you for your devotion to this work. I mean, this book is actually quite countercultural. I actually went to my academic chair at Harvard and I said, you know, real people are the experts in my book. I, Ken, a doctor, am not the expert in the book. And he said, this is a culture that needs to change. This is a very powerful person at Harvard. I'm not a powerful person. I'm, you know, on the faculty. I teach a little bit for fun. And uh, the idea that he recognized, Robert, what you're saying, this is a culture that needs to change. We need to listen to people more. We need to value them for who you, who they are. And of course, what you said about our larger society and economics, of course, plays into the complexity of all of this. I wanted to touch on something he brought up, though. Robert mentioned the lure of money. And just prior to that, you and I were talking about doctors being pressed for time. I read an article in the New York Times about how many psychiatric doctors, how many meds docs are moving out away from the half hour model or the 45 minute model. Because if you see one person after another for 15 minutes and just do the meds check, you're going to make a lot more money. And you you can't blame people for going after the money, but is that part of the cultural issue Robert's talking about? That's one of the dimensions to it. Uh, medical students owe about $200,000, so the problem begins even before they become doctors. So you put them in a $200,000 hole, and then you say to them, why aren't you you know, uh, engaging in community mental health, seeing people for free care? So that's one problem. 15-minute uh, visits, you know, get you to the kind of outcomes that people can't be treated that quickly. The other problem is there's an inadequate insurance reimbursement system. So some doctors just go private pay. You have to write a big check. Back to Robert's concerns about capitalism, which are well-founded. Right? Insurance doesn't pay enough. Mm -hmm. And so what I teach people in the book is how do you write a letter to fight your insurance company to get them to pay for actual care? People experience it as their problem. There are no cardiologists that don't take insurance. It's unimaginable. Mm -hmm. It's unimaginable, right? 
There are no private pay radiologists. Unimaginable. Insurance has failed to take care of the mental health system, in part because of what Robert says. It's the devaluation of the people who are different. I want to go to one last point with Robert's phone call, and that is that no one cares. There are parts of the system, absolutely, and parts of the reigning culture that are not showing that they care with money. But NAMI is made up of people who care. NAMI's made up of people who care. And you can find a community of people who get it. And it's not only in NAMI. It's in Mental Health America. It's in the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance, the Trevor Project. There are other places to find it. But I agree with you. It is not everywhere. Uh, let's talk to Robert, who's waiting here for us. Uh, Robert, uh, pardon me, Ron. Ron, you're on your call. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm a little slow here. But I'm in my 80s, so I, I still am able to talk. But I, in the San Francisco area, was a court-appointed conservative. Uh, and earlier experiences in support for military and public and private uh, mental institutions. And what I learned uh, later on in doing student service projects was that young people, student-age people, mid-school uh, and high school, they, they don't look at mental health in the same way that one with some experience or, or an adult might. And I believe that there should be a way to bring mental health issues directly to the younger student, one of, at least with the comprehension and, and, and the potential of self-awareness where such things can be guided toward uh, seeking support in, in their lives and, and support of others at the earliest stages of learning. And I'm just wondering if, if your guests and others uh, would have an opinion here and to see where that might be manifest. Got you, Ron. Ron, you're right. And uh, the largest, fastest-growing program at NAMI is called Ending the Silence, where people with mental health conditions go into middle schools and high schools and convey the experience of what uh, they might be experiencing and how to find help for it. Young people have been disproportionately impacted by the COVID crisis. It hit them at a developmental moment where they're trying to explore the world and instead they're in their parents' basement. So the, the incidence, the rate of mental health conditions is higher in young people and they're also more open. I agree with you, Ron. This is a moment for generational change. Ending the Silence is a program. You contact your local NAMI. There's one in San Mateo, one in Santa Cruz. Uh, you can look on the NAMI website and find one. If you have a connection in a school and you say, we should be doing something in health class about the thing that actually is causing problems, not so much vision and, you know, sex ed. Those are things that are great. But, you know, what about addiction and mental health? which are the things that take young people's lives. Mm -hmm. And this is the crisis. So I couldn't agree with you more, Ron. And I think your experience is, uh, you know, fantastic that you've been doing this for so long. And the younger generation is also changing this equation. It's very interesting. Let's talk about adult kids. Let's talk about the toughest situation. You have an adult kid who has a diagnosis of perhaps schizophrenia, mm -hmm. who does not want to believe that they're ill, mm -hmm. They don't want the parents interfering, and they're at that cusp in age where legally they are an adult. Yes. Talk about that situation. Very heartbreaking situation. Because as it turns out in America, you know, we really value individual privacy and individual autonomy. And when people turn 18 in virtually every state, they become the arbiter of their own medical records. 
And if people don't believe, so my dad did not know that he had a psychosis. So he would communicate with the microwave oven when he was manic and psychotic. After treatment, six months later, he would use it to heat up his coffee. And I used to think, what is this? There's a medical term for it. It's called anosognosia. But it's lack of awareness of illness. This is very common with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. The key thing is they're not doing it to you. It's not denial. It's not that they know it. It's really for the vast majority of people, they can't see it. When I was a young man, uh, as a medical intern, I would interview stroke patients who wouldn't wash one side of their body. They couldn't see that side of their body. It's a brain-based deficit. This is what's happening with people. And I interviewed one of the experts in America for how to talk to people mm-hmm. who are living with that experience. NAMI is a community of people that are working on this. And the first thing you'll learn is, of course, if you attend NAMI meetings, there's hundreds of other people contending with this and trying to change the system. Mm -hmm. But you'll also find a lot of other people who are doing this heroic work and joining with other people who are doing this kind of service can also offer value. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm sorry, NAMI can't solve this problem. We don't understand why there's anosognosia, why people with psychosis cannot appreciate that they're ill. You see it in Alzheimer's disease. You see it in strokes. The brain has the inability to appreciate some of its own dysfunction at times, and that's really hard. Mm -hmm. I hate to say that our time is up, but our time is up. I thank you so much for what you've done. I thank you for the book. And uh, the book that we're talking about with Dr. Ken Duckworth is You Are Not Alone. But I want to say thank you. Thank you, Angie. And thanks to all the people who called in. You asked wonderful questions, important questions that will help other people. I'm Angie Cuero. See you again on Thursday here on KALW.